Today is the Sunday before Election Day. If you live in a municipality that's eligible to vote this Tuesday, do any of you vote early? Early and often, right? Uh, any uh, Anybody planning to vote Tuesday? All right, very good. Uh, I encourage you to remind your friends, neighbors, and colleagues to vote who are eligible to vote on Tuesday. And if you, you know, we live in the 21st century, so if you don't live in a place where you can vote, or even if you do, you know, there are plenty of, there are increasing numbers of websites and apps where you can get on and you can get involved in that Virginia election. You can get, you know, you can advocate for these things wherever you live. Now, it's up to you if beyond the encouraging someone to vote, it's up to you whether you want to get into whom you think they should vote for. That may or may not be strategic. Uh, and my point, really, is this Cole talked about earlier, that our democracy only works well if we, the people, participate. So on this Sunday before Election Day, I'd like to invite us to reflect a little bit on what democracy means for such a time as this. And it can be helpful to pause sometimes and recall where did we get this idea of democracy in the first place. As many of you may know, the democracy and that idea, that ideal was born in ancient Athens about 2,500 years ago, around the turn of the 5th to the 4th century BCE, when revolts against the rule of tyrants led to people the demos in ancient Greek, getting the power, the kratia, giving us that word democracy, demos kratia. But beyond that basic definition of rule by the people, it's important to be honest that democracy historically has been a word widely used and abused. It's an example of what philosophers call an essentially contested concept, The people don't agree about what is at the essence of democracy. And a lot of different people deploy it for a wide array of different purposes. One of the clearest examples of what I'm talking about is the track record of military dictators co-opting the term democracy to describe their regime. I'll limit myself to just a few examples from just the 20th century, but there are many more examples throughout history. Consider Gamal Nasser, the second president of Egypt, who said that, oh, I'm the head of a presidential democracy. What he actually was the head of is an authoritarian state with multiple human rights violations and the dominance of military over civil institutions. Or Ayub Khan, the second president of Pakistan, who said that, oh, I'm head of a basic democracy. In reality, he was the country's first martial law ruler who forcibly assumed the presidency. Sukarno, the first president of Indonesia, said, oh, I'm the head of a guided democracy. It was very strongly guided. It was a strong and growing autocracy. Francisco Franco, a Spanish general who said, I'm the head of an organic democracy, but he was a military dictator who violently suppressed opposition and dissent, banned culture seen as non-Spanish, of course he got to decide what that meant, and used concentration camps and forced labor. Alfredo Stressner, a president of Paraguay, said, I'm the head of a selective democracy. The reality was that his 35-year rule was one of ruthless suppression of all um, opposition, a constant state of siege, which he used to overrule civil liberties and the torturing and killing of political opponents. Uh, Finally, Rafael Trujillo, uh, president of the Dominican Republic, said, I'm part of a neo-democracy, Uh, And while he brought the country a great deal of stability and prosperity during his 31-year reign, the price was quite high. 
Civil liberties were non-existent, human rights violations were routine, and much of the country's wealth somehow wound its way into the hands of his closest family and associates. Trujillo and his regime were also responsible for the death of more than 50,000 citizens of that country during his reign. Now, I've taken the time to quickly run through these examples because there's an important pattern here of authoritarian dictators perverting the word democracy for their own selfish ends. They know that there's a power in that ideal. They know the, uh, that there's an appeal in making the people feel like they are powerful. So they exploit the word democracy for their propaganda. As the saying goes, when fascism comes to America, it will come carrying a cross and wrapped in a flag. It will exploit those noble ideals of the cross and the flag for its own ends. However, the most troubling part is actually not the cynical truth that nearly um, all contemporary political regimes, no matter how repressive, claim to be democracies of some sort, because of course they do, right? Of course narcissistic demagogues lie, cheat, and steal their way to as much power as we will let them get away with. The truly troubling part is the disturbing percentage of citizens who believe their propaganda, Perceptions of democratic reality are surprisingly robust in such unlikely places as Rwanda, uh, Malaysia, and Kazakhstan. Even Chinese respondents were virtually indistinguishable from American respondents, not only in their enthusiasm for democracy as an ideal, but also in their assessment of how democratically their own country is currently being run. The ease with which people can be manipulated has actually led some people to be against democracy. Most famously, the ancient Greek philosopher Plato, whose lifetime actually spanned the coining of the term democracy, he was not a fan. He thought that we, the people, were too often much less like informed citizens and more like a mob, selfish, fickle, and inconsistent. He favored an aristocracy ruled by an educated elite, in particular a philosopher king, which of course conveniently meant people like Plato. In recent weeks, we've looked back on both the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution as well as the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and part of what we've considered was some of the unintended consequences that flowed from those two major paradigm shifts, the consequences that were often far different and far more dire than anything their original leaders could have anticipated or predicted. Democracy has also had its fair share of unintended consequences. Consider this passage from the philosopher Adam Kotzko. He says that liberal democracy can easily give way to dictatorship, even with a constitution being in force. We know that liberal democracy is apparently compatible with chattel slavery and racial discrimination, and that indeed the first modern democratic republic ever established, the United States of America, spent over a half century with a significant enslaved population and a further century with a disenfranchised population subject to the mob violence of Jim Crow. Liberal democracy is compatible with the equivalent of secret police, extra-legal assassinations, and undeclared wars of aggression. Uh, with vast and increasing economic inequality, with mass unemployment and homelessness, with child poverty and hunger, with a huge prison population resulting from a racist approach to law enforcement, with essential public functions being handed over to private individuals for private gain, etc., etc., etc. 
Yet essentially no one says, no, we can't afford to try liberal democracy. It'll lead straight to chattel slavery. Or I admire the high ideals of democracy, but it always ends up with able-bodied adults begging in the streets. Those are some of the things we can think about as we wrestle with how might we design a different, better system. But really the point here is that power to the people is a necessary but not sufficient condition for collective liberation in which we really get peace, liberty, and justice for all, not merely for some. There are additional factors needed to give we the people the greatest chances of using our power wisely. For instance, it's helpful to remind ourselves occasionally of what took place over three crucial months less than 100 years ago in Europe. On January 30th, 1933, Adolf Hitler Hitler was democratically appointed to be the Chancellor of Germany. One month later, on February 27th, the Reichstag, the home of the German parliament, was burned down. It's not clear exactly who did that. It may have been a convenient uh, act of arson. This terrorist event, either way, was used as an excuse to suspend civil liberties, the freedom of the press, the freedom of association. Another month later, on March 23rd, the Enabling Act. They literally called it the Enabling Act. You know how we talk about not enabling an addict? You don't want to enable dictators either. This Enabling Act paved the way for the German Chancellor to be declared Führer, which in German means leader, and for the Weimar Republic to devolve into a one-party dictatorship. Part of how Germany responded long-term to that catastrophic but quite quick series of events was that today the German constitution forbids the formation of anti-democratic parties and governments have been prepared in Germany to ban fascist organizations. That means it is unconstitutional in Germany to usurp power in a way that removes accountability from the consent of the governed. As historian Mark Bray has written about in his important new book, Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook, vigilance is needed to protect, to protect our democratic and our constitutional norms. Because it just doesn't take that many fascists to make fascism. When Mussolini was appointed prime minister in 1922, somewhere around 7 to 8% of the, Ameri- of the Italian population and about 35 of the more than 500 members of the Italian parliament belonged to the National Fascist Party but it rapidly changed from there. When Hitler was appointed chancellor in 1933, merely 1.3% of the population, 1.3, belonged to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. I'm not making a blanket endorsement of Antifa, but I do recommend Bray's book as a helpful historical overview of resistance movements against fascism. As some of you have heard me say before, you don't fight fascists because you're definitely going to win. You fight fascists because they're fascists. And if you're looking for a guide to tracking violations of our democratic and constitutional norms, I recommend the website Bright line watch. What are the bright lines of our democratic and constitutional norms that we need to keep a watch of? It's a network of political scientists monitoring monitoring our country's democratic practices, their resiliences, and the potential threats. Now, in my remaining time, I'd like to say just a little more about what practicing and protecting democracy for such a time as this could mean by inviting us to consider three specific angles. Realism, pragmatism, and hope. First, realism, the hardest one. 
One of the most fascinating and disturbing books that I read after our most recent um, election is titled Democracy for Realists, published in 2016 by Princeton University Press. It's a study of what does the data actually show us, not just our democratic ideals. And in contrast to our democratic ideals about engaged citizens creating a government of the people, by the people, for the people, a phrase, by the way, which Lincoln got from the Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker. In contrast to that, the social scientists who co-wrote Democracy for Realists show clear evidence that the great majority of citizens, this will come as a great shock, pay no attention to politics or little attention. Instead of having you know, a bunch of free time to carefully weigh evidence, the truth is, of course, people are busy, right? And when election day arrives, rather than being led primarily by reason, studies show over and over again that most people are swayed by how how they feel about this subjective thing called the nature of the times, especially the current state of the economy, which may or may not, that's their perception of the current state of the economy, which may or may not relate to the actual state of the economy and by political loyalties uh, typically acquired in childhood. You hear about people being in a bubble, so what social scientists call that is a pseudo-environment, that a lot of people act at, they, they, they vote, they use pseudo-thinking based out of their pseudo-environment that doesn't necessarily correspond to reality. So if we're going to truly live in to our UU Fifth Principle of the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregations and in society at large, we need to cultivate many factors not currently in place in our country to help people give them the chance to use their people power as responsibly and well as possible. Things like effective participation, a much higher uh, rate percentage of people voting. Enlightened understanding, equipping people with much more nuanced grasps of um, politics, control of the agenda, meaning the continued responsiveness of government to the preferences of its citizens, each considered as political equals and much less bias toward corporations and toward the wealthiest among us. And finally, the inclusion of adults, much less voter suppression than is the case today. Tragically, no existing government comes close to meeting these criteria anywhere on planet Earth. Moreover, given the limitations of human nature, you can decide whether you agree with this, but the co-authors of Democracy Democracy for Realists think that the limitations of human nature lead them to think that arguably no possible government ever could, at least on any sort of large scale. Now, that's a heavy dose of realism, right? Where's the pragmatism? Where's the hope? Well, pragmatism is about what works. So what might work to make our society more democratic? Here are three specific ideas from experts. One is to advocate for policies and for politicians that support greater economic and social equality. The huge wealth gap in our country in which the educated, the wealthy, and the well-connected have a vastly disproportionate role in our political process is one of the greatest existential threats to our democracy. The second is to make Election Day a a celebration much more like the 4th of July. And I'm not just talking about the obvious things like making Election Day a national holiday. We definitely need to do that. But a number of experiments with organizing festivals at polling places that offer food and fun and music, but not alcohol, have shown a moderately large and statistically significant impact on voting. 
The third is to improve and expand civics education in our nation's schools. Tragically, civics are not emphasized in most states today to any significant extent. Now, I could list examples all day make a, of what we might do. Make a constitutional amendment overturning Citizens United. Overturn the racist electoral college. Guarantee an affirmative constitutional right to vote. But the point is not just dreaming about change, but turning our dreams into deeds, turning our dreams into reality. So I want to leave you with a note of hope about what might actually work to make some of those, or what might work to make us think that some of this might become possible. Two years ago, the annual UU General Assembly delegates selected the corruption of our democracy as the current four-year Congregational Study Action Initiative for all four UU congregations. That stretches from 2016 to 2020. You can Google that, UU and corruption of our democracy, to learn a lot more about that. As part of that, one of two common reads selected for all UUs, that's us, to consider reading in the current year. One of them is Daring Democracy. That's my sermon title this morning. The subtitle is Igniting Power, Meaning, and Connection for the America that We Want. In the spirit of full disclosure, I'd actually, if you're going to only read one of our two common reads, it's the other one I'd actually tell you to read. It's called Centering, Navigating Race, Authenticity, and Power. But there are two parts in particular I would highlight from Daring Democracy. On one hand, it's certainly the case that power to the people, that hasn't always gone so well in this country. Sometimes the people have chosen poorly. They've been swayed by con men, hucksters, snake oil salesmen, and demagogues. On the other hand, there is a strong history in this country of the people wielding their power for justice and sometimes succeeding against stunning odds. That at our founding, farmers and shopkeepers and laborers defeated an empire. That, too, is part of our nation's story. Since then, black Americans risked their lives to fight against the subjugation of enslavement and then for their democratic rights. Women fought for decades to secure suffrage. In the 1930s, a democratic upsurge by workers led to the New Deal, which achieved basic protections of human dignity both in the workplace and in retirement. Soon thereafter, we could look at McCarthyism and the witch hunts that dimmed our democracy, but brave Americans fought back. By the 1960s, we began leaning in to halt an unwise war, to demand civil rights protections, and to embrace a war on poverty that by the early 70s had cut the poverty rate in half. We need to remind ourselves sometimes of these historic successes of social justice because it's not just the huge challenge that kills the human spirit. Those huge challenges can actually call us to be our best as individuals and as a society. What most defeats us is feeling useless. A sense of futility is what most threatens to destroy us. So as we discern what actions might we take individually and collectively in the coming weeks and months and years to strengthen our democracy, past successes could embolden us to realize that more is possible than we sometimes realize. Consider that before they happened, what odds would anyone have given to Lyndon Johnson, a president from Texas, with prior antagonism towards civil rights, passing the historic 1965 Voting Rights Act? What chance would people have given to the citizens of South Dakota, a historically conservative state, passing the public financing of elections in the year, in the year 2016? Uh, what chance would people have given to a retired attorney in Hawaii one night late in 2016, incredibly devastated, posting on Facebook, 
to her, just her friends is what she thought. What about a march? What if we all got together uh, the day after the presidential inauguration and then to wake up and find 10,000 people had liked what she shared? Not to mention that her idea turned into a multi-person global protest. What about citizens' actions blocking the appeal of the Affordable Care Act in 2017, which most people thought had no chance of working? The co-authors of Daring Democracy conclude that despair is ultimately our worst enemy. And they write, we've become ever more clear that there is an effective antidote, meaningful action that we take together. Elections have consequences, but we the people can get involved and advocate for change. So vote. Register other people to vote. Make your voice heard, and together we can give ourselves the greatest chance of building a new way. So in addition to voting, encourage others to vote, uh, you know, getting involved in the run-up to this election day. It's coming. Elections matter, and they have consequences. In addition to that, the other small thing I'll say uh, in the spirit of this um, powerful hymn, thank you, choir, for sharing that. I would encourage you can email this to yourself, send a reminder, or just Google later Langston Hughes, Let America Be America Again. Many of you have probably read that in the past. We've, we've ex- re- explored it here some, but that's part of the poem that inspired um, the composer. And to share just a little bit of that piece, uh, Langston Hughes is one of our great Harlem Renaissance poets, is wrestling as a black man with the, the American dream and the way that often hasn't been true for people that looked like Langston Hughes. And so he wrestles with saying, we have this great dream, but America has never been America to me. But he concludes, and there's a lot of things he concludes with, so I encourage you to read the whole thing, but he says, but America yet may be. So may we each do our part individually and collectively to bring our dreams, to turn them into deeds. May you continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.